0: This is Radio Boston. I'm Tisiana Deering. Governor Maura Healy has set a deadline. Steward Health must provide the financial information that Massachusetts wants by the end of the day today. Meanwhile, our congressional delegation is awaiting response on demands it has made of Steward. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, who represents parts of Boston, Cambridge, signed those letters and is also raising the alarm over the closings of pharmacies in her district. That's just the beginning of many things to talk about. The Congresswoman is with us. Congresswoman Presley, welcome back to Radio Boston.
1: Wonderful to be with you, Tiziana, always, and happy Black History Month. Thank you.
0: Happy Black History Month to you, too. It's great to have you. Let's start in this healthcare space where there are some moves by large companies that can harm our most vulnerable here in the Commonwealth. I want to start with Stewart. You heard the headline there. I'm going to jump right in with a little sound from uh, one of your colleagues in the delegation, uh, Stephen Lynch, on uh, a press conference on Stewart Health uh, earlier this week.
1: Uh, Meanwhile, these nine hospitals are struggling and the patients and the employees, 16,000 employees, are in a very precarious situation. So together with the governor and uh, Kate Walsh, the health secretary here in Massachusetts, uh, we're trying to get information from Stewart Healthcare to try to figure out a response here. One of the difficulties we have is they've expressed a willingness to exit.
0: So, Congresswoman, I want to focus on this word get um, because so far that hasn't worked. Governor Healy has not expressed consequences if the if steward doesn't comply today. Um, uh, I don't know what the status is of their response to the letters and the deadlines that our de- delegation sent. But is there a way at this point to compel? Can anybody make steward deliver the transparency that it has not delivered yet? Is there anything our delegation can
1: do? Well, I think every option has to be on the table. Though I think it is shameful that it could come to potentially a situation where we'd have to subpoena this information. Uh, you know, the, the the wealth of our our Commonwealth uh, begins with the health of our residents, and the closure of stored health care. This is a public health crisis for communities across the Commonwealth. It's going to threaten access to care for our most vulnerable, place undue burdens on our already struggling healthcare system. And honestly, Tiziana, it's really just a damning example of how private equity ownership and a for-profit healthcare system damages our healthcare system and puts people's lives at risk. People's, The, the workforce, uh, their livelihoods are in limbo. Uh, the patients, their health is in limbo. And it's just really shameful. The story is putting profits over patients. So, and I have to tell you, you know, in that this is the, for my district, the Massachusetts 7th uh, Congressional, Kearney Hospital in Dorchester, St. Elizabeth's in Brighton, these are both stored facilities, and they serve primarily patients who rely on MassHealth or Medicare, so are most vulnerable. So this, this has uh, a, a, a truly uh, a domino uh, effect of devastation. I met with community health centers uh, last week in Washington. I have 14 in my district. One in three of my constituents get their care from a community health center. They are already struggling uh, under the weight of the needs that um, they so uh, you know urgently and compassionately uh, meet while also uh, addressing the needs of new arrivals. And they shudder to think about what the impact would be on their system, our CHCs, uh, With a closure with steward health
0: care. So that raises exactly what I wanted to ask you next then, Congresswoman, because it seems like it's hard to know what the desirable end game is here. If this is a bad actor, right, a bad financial actor in for-profit health care, but the alternatives, meaning where patients would go uh, if they exit – are already strained, then, then, you know, which end game do you root for? That they exit Massachusetts uh, and uh, patients go elsewhere? Or that they stay given the history of uh, what, you know, you've just said is is a bad actor?
1: Well, again, I'm not ceding any defeat here. We just have to continue to press for uh, these answers and transparency that we can protect workers and patients. If we know exactly how they have arrived at at this situation, is this about management? Uh, You know what I mean? They're they're fifty million dollars behind on rent, in nine health facilities across the state. So we we need the transparency uh, to better understand ways in which we might prevent this.
0: Let's stay here on for profit health companies providing for critical health needs for your constituents. Um, because uh, you talked about on January 30th on the House floor, the fact that, you know, another Walgreens closed. Uh, this one in, uh, in Roxbury, I'm going to play a little bit of what you said on the House floor, and then I'll ask a follow up a for you.
1: Mr. Speaker, Walgreens is planning to close yet another pharmacy in the Massachusetts 7th. This time on Warren Street in Roxbury, a community that is 85% black and latino. This closure is a part of a larger trend of abandoning low-income communities like the previous closures in Mattapan and Hyde Park both in the Massachusetts 7th. When a Walgreens leaves a neighborhood, they disrupt the entire community and they take them and they take with them baby formula, diapers, asthma inhalers, life-saving Mm -hmm. medications, and of course, jobs.
0: So there's the stakes. And they did close. And The Washington Post has said over the past two years, Rite Aid, CVS, Walgreens have closed more than 1,500 stores nationwide. So what's the next step for Congress? Do you, I don't know, create incentives to bring back the local pharmacy owners that were forced out when the big boxes came in over years? Is this regulations? Is it incentives? What, what's the concrete thing you do to fill the gap where there are now pharmacy deserts?
1: Well, I think all of the above and, um, but just to um, enter into the chat, so to speak, our community health centers once again, uh, many of them are stepping up uh, in this gap to meet that need. And our community health centers have long been uh, over um, utilized and under resourced. And I've long been a champion of them because they provide uh, compassionate, uh, culturally competent, patient-centered care. Serving the needs of our most vulnerable, um, I, you know, in my five-year uh, tenure in Congress, I've delivered about seventy-six million dollars to those community health centers, and so I'm grateful uh, for their willingness to uh, stand in the gap, uh, given the the many stressors on the system. And Tiziana, I'll remind you that the Massachusetts Seventh is one of the most unequal districts in our uh, delegation, and that is including and especially when it comes to health outcomes. Um, Where in a three-mile radius uh, from Cambridge to Roxbury, life expectancy drops uh, by 30 years. Uh, So you know the the um, when we see a divestment of resources uh, from healthcare, whether you're talking about the residual impacts of a stored uh, healthcare closure, whether you're talking about Walgreens coming out of uh, our communities, uh, this has a real uh, impacts on on people's lives, and I'm I'm in this, yeah, so go ahead, on people's, yeah, this is about changing and saving lives, and so.
0: You and I keep saying this, talking at the same time, I'm sorry, but I'm intrigued by what you just said, and it makes me think, like right this second, is this a go small or go home moment, and what I mean by that is a a shift in strategy uh, for core communities towards a more community health center model, that the big companies, the large uh, the, you know, large networks, et cetera, uh, there's a shape of things to come, and it is time to go small or go home into things like community health centers to serve populations?
1: Well, you know, at this time I couldn't tell you, you know, what is the, the the official plan going forward, only that right now I'm doing everything that I can to mitigate the harm and to prevent what has been a trend of divestment of critical assets um, in the Massachusetts Seventh and in other marginalized communities. Uh, this again with Walgreens is it's a part of a larger trend of abandoning low-income communities. And I should say Tiziana again in representing one of the most unequal districts. This is work that I do, sort of this oversight all the time. When I, on the Financial Services Committee, I'm in the same fight to stop uh, the five largest banks, uh, Bank of America in particular, from closing branches uh, in my community, in my district. They've had 230 bank closures across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, and in, in the city of Boston, 39, 10% of my constituents are unbanked, and 20% in the city of Boston are underbanked. And so when you layer the divestment of all of these uh, resources and these assets, um, the the implications are are deeply consequential. And um, I'm doing everything I can to mitigate the harm. And to, and to think about these things in a radically different way. Uh, and in the meantime, I'll continue to support those efforts that are standing in the gap, like our community health centers.
0: So let's pick up on this idea of thinking of things in a radically different way. And, and I'm going to pivot because I'm struck by uh, the court in Alabama thinking of things in a radically different way. I know you're aware of the ruling there, Um on uh, in vitro fertilization and giving the status to embryos um, of life. Uh, And much has been discussed in the last couple of days about the impact on people who want to use IVF in order to have children. Your colleague, Congresswoman Lori Trahan, described the decision as a gut punch to the political Massachusetts playbook, uh, saying, quote, the idea that a family who's gone through every possible option before finally turning to IVF, having that option ripped away from them is just a pain that I can't imagine, end quote. The other piece of this that really strikes me, Congresswoman, and seems pretty important to pay attention to, is that Chief Justice Tom Parker in his uh, uh, ruling alongside, right, said, quote, um, Alabama law recognizes, quote, that this is – true of unborn human life no less than it is of all other other human life that even before birth all human beings bear the image of god and their lives cannot be destroyed without effacing his glory end quote that is using christian text to make law you we have three branches of government <laughs> uh, congress is one of them what about the piece where the courts are using Christian texts to make law that could affect every person in America?
1: Well, obviously, as a black woman, and this is Black History Month, I'm no stranger, um, you know, to uh, a religion being perverted and weaponized uh, as it was to justify the enslavement of my ancestors. Um, And so there are um, uh, ill people (laughs) uh, bad actors, um, you know, who continue to do things like that. Uh, this is devastating, uh, this ruling to come out of the Alabama Supreme court. They have no business being in anyone's family business. You know, it's just a, a devastating decision. It's harmful. It's going to make it harder for people to grow their families through IVF. I, I think uh, something like three IVF clinics in Alabama have already shut down. But it's really just more of the same of this far-right extremism. It's the latest attempt by this forced-birth, anti-abortion movement to restrict access to sexual and reproductive health care. So first they came for abortion access, then birth control, and now IVF. And and we can't allow them to dictate when, how, and whether we grow our families. So we need a whole-of-government response. You know, I... um, I chair the Abortion Rights and Access Task Force under the Pro-Choice Caucus. Um, we've got to pass bills like the Women's Health Protection Act, my Abortion Justice Act to codify reproductive health care as a human right and make it readily available uh, to all who need it. Um, but we need, we need a whole government response in this moment. We have to continue to push as if uh, lives depend on it because they do. Um,
0: I'm going to leave that there, knowing that we will talk more about it in the future, because I want to note where we are on student loans this week, because you have been so vocal on pushing for student loan forgiveness, both through administrative action and through legislative action. Uh, now, through more administrative action, nearly another uh, 2,500 borrowers will be eligible to have nearly 20 million in student loans forgiven here. Uh, President Biden has made this next uh, move uh, for student people who borrowed under the save plan. Uh, If you are originally borrowed under $12,000 a year, you stand and and the loans are more than 10 years old, you stand to have your debt um, forgiven. We've talked a lot about this on the show. Um, I'm thinking about, like, if you have a like, like a map, right, from point A to point Z, and you're tracking the progress of how much you want to see done, are you now at 30 percent done, 50 percent done, 70 percent done in what you want on this issue, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley?
1: So, Ayanna, I'm, I'm encouraged by the progress made and that uh, President Biden and Secretary Cardona have kept... Um, Uh, There are promise to us to not abandon borrowers and to continue to push um, for this relief in the wake of the Supreme Court, uh, obstructing executive action and really overturning the will of the people. Uh, And so in that time, uh, we've seen uh, some 4 million Americans uh, receive relief to the tune of $130 billion. Um, Over 32,000 borrowers in Massachusetts had been Uh, impacted. That's before uh, this recent announcement this week. So I'm encouraged, but I'm not done fighting. I will never give short shrift to uh, the difference it has made Uh, in this targeted relief. But I'm going to continue to advocate for broad-based student debt relief because the executive action we push uh, the president to take would have benefited 43 million Americans uh, in that broad-based approach. And we, again, this is a time for, we're in an unprecedented time in our country that requires unprecedented action.
0: What would be, understood, Right. So understood that without legislative action, this is an incomplete picture no matter what. That being said, what would be the next administrative action step you do want to see taken that can happen and you think makes the next big jump forward?
1: Well, right now we're, we're actively in a negotiated rulemaking process, um, which I'm, I'm very uh, involved in and closely following to ensure that we are getting uh, closer to that broad based relief. Uh, that we organized and mobilized for and that uh, the administration made a commitment to do.
0: All right. A couple more things that I want to talk to you about uh, before we let you go. Uh, Again, we're speaking with Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley here on Radio Boston. You began uh, by noting Black History Month. I want to go there for a second and I have a very specific question for you. Uh, I know that you are aware that uh, the president of the Massachusetts Senate, Karen Spilka, uh, will be naming a woman from Massachusetts history to have a bust placed in the Senate chamber. Just recently, a bust of Fred. Douglas was placed there. We spoke with Boston Globe's Kimberly Atkins Storr uh, earlier this week who made the case that um, Mariah Stewart, who was the first black female published political writer and the first woman of any race to give public political speeches, should be the one. Here is Kimberly.
1: This is the early 1830s. So women aren't even supposed to talk politics In their own home. Like, that's not their place for any woman, let alone a woman of color. So here she is speaking at public venues around, in and around Boston to audiences, sometimes they're audiences of women, but sometimes they are mixed audiences in terms of gender, which is extraordinary, and mixed audiences in terms of race, which is even more extraordinary.
0: Understanding that there's no right answer. You could pick a hundred different ones. Oh, Tiziana,
1: do not do that to me. You're not <laughs> who I think I should be. We're not gonna go there. Well, but uh, what, I do, what I do wanna acknowledge uh, is the leadership of, of Karen Spilka and thank uh, her for recognizing that who we honor matters. Okay, but I'm gonna and,
0: I'm gonna stop there because stay with me for a second. Kimberly was okay. very clear. Listen, there could be many. This is one who should be raised up, and I used this as a device to raise her up. Right. So what I wanted to ask you is, who's another woman that you would use? Not saying this ought to be the one, but raise a woman in Black history up right now who motivates you, who speaks to you, and maybe. Uh, we don't think about enough.
1: Wow, it's a deep bench. There's so many, um, and I know we already have something to Phyllis Wheatley. I mean, certainly, uh, I feel very impacted by her example. But uh, maybe it's just because I, I've read so many biographies about her recently. Uh, Coretta Scott King is always just very top of mind for me. I, I think we've made you know a lot a lot of strides in her starting to get her flowers and her just do. Um, But, you know, she wasn't just some um, grieving a widow who took up a mantle in the wake of the assassination of of Dr. King. Uh, She was a a really uh, critical and strategic thinker, architect of the movement, uh, policies like my federal job guarantee uh, that I'm looking uh, to to move in Congress. These were ideas that were initiated by her. Um, She was the one that that encouraged uh, Dr. King to take a position against the Vietnam War. Um, which was uh, an incredibly unpopular position uh, that he took. And so the work that I do every day of combating those three evils of poverty, racism and militarism, uh, many of, uh, of, of my tactics and, and my worldview has been directly shaped um, by the voice and the I- ideas of Coretta Scott King. Uh, I also wanted to share with you that last week I had the, the great privilege of spending time with the descendants of Ida B. Wells, of Booker T. Washington, of Rosa Parks, of of Malcolm X, of Frederick Douglass, and it was the descendants of Frederick Douglass who shared with me just how much it meant to them that there was a bust about being uh, put up or unveiled at the state house uh, the following day uh, to honor Frederick Douglass. So again, who who we mat who we honor uh, does matter, both for the purposes of preventing erasure uh, at a time when people seek to uh, deny the contributions of Black Americans to American history. Uh, and who want to put forward a, a revisionist history, uh, and also in the wake of attacks on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, so who we honor matters.
0: I appreciate you staying with me through the end of that, because that was an answer worth waiting for. Thank you, Massage- <laughs> <laughs> Massachusetts. I appreciate Cong- you. <laughs> <laughs> Congresswoman Ayanna Presley great to have you. Represents the 7th Congressional District. Have a good weekend. Thanks for being on Radio Boston.
1: Take good care.